chapter 4, here's what the Word of God says. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decrees reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. The, the, the fasting, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called to Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went to, out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatchik went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke, spoke to Hatchik and, and, and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the, peoples, uh, all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will, be, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish." Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So, in Esther chapter 4 is probably the most recognized, well-known, famous verses in all of Esther. We, we find it there in, in verse 14 where, where Mordecai says to Esther, and who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now that phrase, for such a time as this, that makes great stuff art to put up on your wall, right? And it's an encouraging word, and we have oftentimes used that to, to encourage one another. Have you not been put in this place? Have you not had this place of authority or this position or a unique place and time for such a time as this for God to use you for his kingdom and his purposes? 
Now, I think what we'll find as we walk through Esther chapter 4, that what was experienced by Esther and Mordecai is probably somewhat different than what we see looking back on Esther and Mordecai. And I hope that we'll see today that there is tremendous grace in that. Now, this is what I mean. As we looked at Esther and Mordecai through chapters 1 through 3, one of the things that we have said often is those two were likely very secular, so they weren't keeping the dietary laws. Esther, up until this point, has kept it hidden that she's a Jew and, and probably living outwardly as though she's keeping the Persian customs and everything else. And so my guess is that, that maybe what they're approaching these moments with a whole lot of weight on their heart and mind with how can I best position myself for preservation. In fact, some commentators believe that when, when Mordecai uh, messages Esther and says to her, listen, don't, don't you think that if you don't, if you don't, uh, you don't do something now, that, uh, that don't think that you're safe or you and your house will perish? Some commentator, commentators even think that maybe what he was doing is, is uh, not necessarily making a great declaration for the, his trust and faith in the providence of God to, to deliver them, but he, he may have just been making a, a, a subtle threat to her life of, of even threatening to expose her as a Jew and, and she too having her lot put in with those who were to be annihilated and killed. Now, we don't know all of those details, whether what is true on that, but I think we can say this. It's very likely that Esther and Mordecai had a mix of emotions and motivations as they walked through this. But I also think it's very appropriate for us as we look back on this, on this moment in history and this testimony of Scripture to recognize absolutely there's grace through this. And even if they walked through it bumbling, they do give us a testimony of faithful obedience. And this is why I think this is such a word of grace. In my own testimony, and I suspect in your testimony, as you are obeying the Lord, there are probably few moments in our lives where without any reservation, boldly and purely, we stand up and we say, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to obey Jesus no matter what. And in fact, the reality is most of us, as we walk faithfully before the Lord, a lot of days we, we say, yes, Lord, I'll do it, but I'm scared to death. Yes, Lord, I, I'll be obedient, but can there be some other way or some other person to do this? And though we're not always perfect and though we're not always pure in our faith, God uses that anyway. In fact, I'm going to point us to Hebrews 11 toward the end of the, of the sermon today and just celebrate the fact that God uses all kinds of people who in the moment struggled, but when God remembers our faithful obedience, he remembers it with great grace. Looking back at this passage, I think we're able to see the grace of God and the faith of Mordecai and Esther. Now, in the moment, it may not have felt like they were acting out of great faith, but more out of, maybe more out of desperate self-preservation. But even so, through their faith, though their faith may have been weak and their actions may have been mixed with some self-concern, they do give us a beautiful testimony of faithful obedience. And I want us to see these, three, these things out of the passage. Number one, you and I must reckon with the reality of the weakness of worldly wealth. There's only so far worldly wealth can take you. And when real crisis comes to our life, it will prove too weak to do anything for it. We must reckon with the weakness of worldly wealth. We must rely on God's providence in all things. And ultimately, we must resolve to act obediently before the living God. Let's begin with reckoning with 
the weakness of worldly wealth. Now, where I see this happening is in this interchange between Mordecai and Esther. So as we read the passage, Mordecai knows what's coming. And so he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. Now, those were outward symbols of, of someone who was mourning or grieving or humbling themselves before the Lord. Now, it's interesting that it says that, that no one dressed like that could come into the, to the king's court or, or come through the king's gates. So now you can understand that. The Persian king, who cares nothing about the customs nor the law nor the faith of, of the Jews or, or, or anything like that, doesn't care for anything of anybody coming into his house looking all sad and, and put down, right? So don't come in here with that. You can stay outside with that. So Mordecai is, is outside of the, of the king's palace in sackcloth and uh, in ashes. And Esther hears about it in the palace. Now, there's some question about whether or not she knows what's really going down. And there's some, I think there's some good evidence of the fact that she doesn't for two reasons. Number one, she doesn't understand why Mordecai is dressed this way. And number two, he has to send her information about what's happening. And you can appreciate that. There's very likely that that, that, that news is, is segregated from her. It's very likely that it's not uh, applied to her. And it's very likely that she's, she's sequestered inside the, the wealth and the pleasure of the palace. And she's unaware of the difficulties that are happening beyond. But notice how Esther responds to what Mordecai is doing. She hears that he's in sackcloth and ashes. And what does she do? She sends him some clothes. Now, we don't know everything about what's going on with this, but we do know that Esther likely had access to the wealth and the pleasure that comes with being a queen. She sees a loved one, a, a cousin, probably more, if we think about the relationship between her and Mordecai, more like an uncle, even though they were cousins. And she hears about her, her cousin Mordecai, who is clearly distressed, and she's got wealth that can do something about it. So she hears he's, he's walking around in ashes and, and sackcloth. Well, she's got stuff. She's got money. And so she sends him some. Don't you want a relative like that? Amen? Amen? I do, and if you don't, if you don't, you can just send it my way if you don't have a relative like that. So, you know, you, you hear about a cousin, a friend, or somebody that, that, that needs something. Oh, they're, they're down in their luck. They've lost their job. They, uh, they don't have enough money for clothes or for food. And so you've got some, you've got extra. Maybe God's blessed you with great wealth. And so the natural response is, listen, I can take care of that. I've got enough for that. I'll send you something to wear. I'll send you some food to eat. I can take care of whatever it is, Mordecai, that's troubling you. But friends, there are certain griefs. Listen to me carefully here. There are certain griefs that cannot be assuaged by worldly wealth. Wealth and pleasure can provide much comfort and ease in this world. Wealth can provide the false impression that nothing bad can happen to you. It seems like Esther is isolated from the worries of her people. In verse 4, she receives word that Mordecai is grieving, but she doesn't seem to know why. And very likely she's not aware, living in the palace, of what is about to befall her people. Her response to the news of Mordecai's grief is simply to offer wealth to him out of her abundance. And yet Mordecai refuses the author because what she offers is too weak to provide any real comfort. Now, here's the thing. Mordecai understands that all the Jews are about to be annihilated. There is nothing in the palace that can make his heart happy about that. 
even if she were to able to give everything that the king had and every wealth that the world had, it would not assuage the grief of what was befalling the Jews. The comforts of wealth seem great. And the power of wealth to insulate you from the unpleasantries of this world sometimes seems sufficient. But dear friends, wealth cannot comfort the grief of death. Wealth cannot comfort the fear of God's judgment. In this room, who would not give all the worldly wealth they had not to, if you could save the life of a loved one? Is it not true that if you were extremely, grossly wealthy, and yet you discovered that there was something that your child needed that would save their life, would you not give every last penny and joyfully live in abject poverty for the rest of your life to save your child? And the answer is absolutely I would do that. Because in that context, in that decision, the wealth of the world, the pleasure that it provides, the comfort that it provides is worthless on account of saving your child. Esther tries to comfort Mordecai with wealth, but it won't work because it's too weak. When faced with a crisis of eternal consequence, the wealth of this world has no power or worth. Friends, listen, I think this is where we are today. Whether it's been a blessing or a curse, our nation, our land is enjoying tremendous wealth. The things that bother us are not real, eternal things. They're temporary things of comfort. Like if the air condition goes out, we go into a tailspin, don't we? Listen, I'm just telling you, if the air condition quit working in this building today, it'd be hard to have church today. Last night, my internet went out. <gasps> it's still out this morning. We're going to have prayer time after church today for that. We're people that live in gross wealth. But here's what's happening. Listen to me carefully. Our world right now is facing a reality that wealth cannot minister to. People are facing death. Disease is changing their life forever. Losing loved ones and the wealth of this world can't touch that grief. Dear friends, put no faith or trust in the wealth of this world. Now, I think there is grace in crisis moments that point us to our true help. There is a constant temptation to look to the things of this world as a source of help. So, physical ability. I'm strong enough to push through this, to work through this. A mental ability. I'm smart enough, wise enough to work my way through this. Economic wealth. I'm rich enough to buy my way through this. Social status. I've got enough connections, whether that be my personal social status, politically or otherwise, or family social status. My family has enough connections to, to get me through this. As long as the issues we face are worldly concerns, these sources of health help seem sufficient. Physical ability can provide you with opportunities and advancements. If you can physically do something that other people can't, that'll get you some advancement in this world. Mental abilities can provide you advancement above others and access to sources of power and wealth. If you're smart, there are some people that God has just blessed them with more intelligence and mental ability than others. And that pushes you further than other folks. 
Economic wealth can provide comfort and ease and protection from the unpleasant realities of this world. Social status and family resources can provide a safety net and rescue for hard times, even sometimes of your own making. Politics and government can work to make this world better, protection and safety and human flourishing. But here's the thing, friends, none of these things have value when you're standing facing the reality of eternity. On the judgment day, it will not matter what's in your bank account. Somebody say amen. On the judgment day, it won't matter how strong you are or how smart you were or who your family was or what political height you reached. There is grace in moments of crisis that force you to reckon with the weakness of worldly wealth and turn your heart and your mind toward the true source of help, which is the God in heaven. Psalm 20 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It is often only in the moments of great distress that we are able to see how worthless the things of this world are and how great our God is. I don't know all the details and dynamics that were happening between Mordecai and Esther, but I suspect that Esther probably thought, listen, I'm in a pretty good spot. I think I can ride this one out. Mordecai, you're, you're kin to me. You've been good to me. You helped raise me. Brother, I, I can help you out too. But they're reckoning with the weakness, of the, the weakness of this worldly wealth. Being queen wasn't going to save her. Her connection to the palace wasn't going to save Mordecai. Those things of worldly wealth were falling short of their needs. Reckon with the weakness of worldly wealth and dear friends, if we're to be faithfully obedient, we must rely on God's provision alone. Now, here's where we come to verse 14. So Mordecai sends word to her, and he goes, oh, you don't understand, Esther. This is not about me just needing a little money. This is not about me needing a little, a little help. We're facing annihilation. All of our people are looking at genocide. And don't you think that, if, that you're not included in this? And then Mordecai says this wonderful word in verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now, as a side note to this, if you read much commentary on this passage, some, a lot will say they don't think Mordecai was actually pointing to a great word of faith of God. He was just saying, I just think there's going to be help coming from somewhere. But I think according to God's sovereignty, Mordecai was speaking here more than he understood absolutely right, I think, to read this understanding. Mordecai is right whether he knew it or not. Help would come from the Jews. Maybe if Esther wouldn't be obedient, but somewhere God would raise up help and deliver them. He says, don't you, he says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the, to the kingdom for such a time as this. I hope you have been with us in these last two Sundays as we talked about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and how God put Esther in this spot for this moment. We absolutely, when we read the testimony of Esther, we see this as God's intention, as God's providence, as God's care, as God's sovereignty to provide rescue for his people. 
In this moment, Mordecai is calling on Esther to act. And in order for her to act obediently here, she must rely on God's provision. And she must understand in this moment that the will of God is not dependent upon man. The will of God is not dependent upon man. So we've seen in the previous chapters of Esther that God was providentially working to provide deliverance for his people. When Esther inquires why Mordecai is dressed in sackcloth, he sends word back informing her of the predicament the Jews are in. And it very likely may be that Esther thought that, that maybe she could, she could keep herself from that. Maybe she thought she wasn't going to be affected by that. But Mordecai is desperate for help and demands. In fact, the word there is he commands her. She used her position to advocate for her people. That's what he says in verse 8. He commands her. Listen, you're queen. Go to the king and plead for us. Esther pushes back against this command because the law said that she nor anybody else could approach the king. Now, this is pretty well documented, and the, the, the Persian kings had for lack of a better word, a small group of friends. Now, these would be people who had direct access to the king, and it was very small, maybe four or five. Now, others would interact with the king when they were invited, but these four or five folks were the only ones who could come in and interrupt the king. Now, we've seen this in any organization where the, the higher you go in the, in the, uh, the, the organization and the executive staff, the, the group that can interact with the, those folks gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so, you know, it's, in the United States of America, if you want to talk to the president, unless you know somebody, you're not just going to walk, drive up to Washington and knock on the, on the outside door of the, of the Oval Office. Now, there are some people who can walk in that office, but, but probably none of us in this room can. So you can appreciate that. But now this is a little bit more serious because Esther says that the law says that if you break this law and you, you, uh, you do not follow the customs and the law of, of, of uh, passing information through the channels that it ought to go to, and instead you offend the king by approaching him when you don't have access to the king, the penalty for that is death unless he extends his, his staff to you. And then she says, and he hadn't even called for me in 30 days. Now, what she means by that is it's likely the fact that he was enamored with Esther at the beginning, and now he's moved on, and he's essentially forgotten about her. So she says, I don't really have, I don't really have any pull. I don't have any access at all. He's not requesting me. He's not inviting me. For me to do what you're asking likely means death. Now, both Mordecai and Esther have legitimate concerns According to the ways of the world, Mordecai is desperate for help, and he wants to use any resource he can and any source of power he can to get that help. And so he's commanding Esther to do something. Esther is fearful for her own safety. That's legitimate. She didn't want to put herself in harm's way. And whether Mordecai truly understood the fullness of what he said in verse 14 or not, he was right. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He's right because the deliverance of the Jews was not dependent upon the political calculations of Mordecai. The deliverance of the Jews was not dependent upon Mordecai getting Esther to do what he commanded. 
The deliverance of the Jews was not dependent upon the positional influence of Esther. The deliverance of the Jews was not on the ability of Esther to navigate the legal and the, and the customary demands of the Persian court. None of that was dependent. The fulfillment of the will of God was not dependent on the mind of man, the ability of man, the willingness of man, or the obedience of man. The fulfillment of the will of God is dependent only on the power of God, and God accomplishes his will always according to his own power. Now, friends, listen to me. In our arrogance, we often look at what God is doing, and we think, oh, he is dependent upon me. He's dependent upon the church. But it has always been, it will always be, that the will of God prospers because of the power of God. God had put both Mordecai and Esther in place to rescue his people, but even if they both refused to act, God's will would still be accomplished by another way. But here's the beauty here we see. God's will is not dependent upon us, but God does invite us to participate in his will. The beauty of grace is that God invites us to participate in his will and in his work. This past Wednesday, I was teaching in our weekly Bible study from Judges chapter 7, and we read how God took Gideon and 300 men and defeated an army that the Bible says was so massive that they looked like a carpet on the ground. Their camels were so much that they could not be counted. And, and, and the way God used this army was they never actually fought. I don't know if you know the story, but they took torches and they put pots over them so that they were could not be seen and they took trumpets or horns and they encircled this great massive army that had been amassed for their destruction and they went up on the hill surrounding this great army and Gideon just said listen when you see me do when you watch me and do as I do and Gideon gets up there and in the middle of the night he breaks the jar that's over his torch so that his torch begins to be seen and he begins to blow his trumpet and so 300 men and Gideon wave their torches and they blow their trumpets. Now listen, friends, you don't have to be a military strategist to know that trumpet blowing and torch waving does not defeat great armies. And yet the Bible says that the army was put into confusion. They began to turn on one another and they were completely destroyed by men with torches and trumpets. Now the point of Judges chapter 7 is not to teach you some military strategy. It's not to teach you that blowing trumpets and waving uh, torches is somehow some secret knowledge of how to, to defeat great armies. No, it is to teach you that God wanted to do something that only he could do, but he had invited Gideon and those men to participate in what he was doing. God would deliver the Jews Anyway, he would deliver them no matter what, but he had invited Mordecai, he'd invited Esther to participate in what he was doing. The preservation of the church is not dependent upon man. The advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God is not dependent upon man. But in grace, God has invited you to be a part of what he is doing. I think you're here today for such a time as this. I think you are here in this moment for such a time as this. You are where you are in your family, in your work, in your community for such a time as this. Don't miss the opportunity to be part of what God is accomplishing and has invited you to participate in. Rely on God's provision. And then lastly, resolve to act. 
So in verse 15, tables turn a little bit. Esther begins to give the commands. She replied to Mordecai. She said, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I think what's happening here is when Esther understands the opportunity to participate in what God had called her to do, she resolves to act. And I think, dear friends, this is a, an important component in our faithful obedience. It's not just enough to get our mind and our heart right. We've got to get our feet right, too. Amen? We can't just say we're going to be obedient. We actually have to be obedient. And say with Esther, if I perish, I perish. Now, there's three things I want you just to see about the progression of her resolving to act. The first thing is she prays. Don't skip this one. Don't go over this one too quickly. I think it's important. Even if here Esther is not acting out of true, unpolluted faith, she still gives a good testimony toward faithful obedience, and that begins with how she moves forward in this moment that she calls together a prayer time. The tables turn in, 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 in verse 18 with Esther giving the orders to Mordecai. And what she commands of Mordecai is, Mordecai, you get up everybody you know. And for three days, we're going to fast and pray, preparing for what I'm about to do. She says, me and all the folks with me, we're going to do the same thing. Friends, listen to me. Faithful obedience always begins with prayer. Somebody say amen. It does not begin with a strategy session. It does not begin with a capital campaign to raise the money. Faithful obedience begins with prayer. Just getting before the Lord and say, God, I'm, I'm about to act in obedience. Scared to death. Worried fearful for my own life. So we're going to spend the next three days with our faces towards you, preparing our hearts and our minds, seeking God's guidance, seeking God's wisdom, seeking God's grace. Dear friends, I believe if the church is to do great things for the kingdom of God, it must begin with the church doing great things in prayer. Begin with prayer. And then secondly, she acts. Even as Esther calls for a three-day fast to pray for what is to come, she has already resolved to act. In verse 16, she says, Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She is praying with a heart already decided on acting. Now, I don't think this is a small point at all. Because I believe many, even in the church, are content and happy to, to prepare to act by praying, by planning, by pondering, by meeting, by strategizing, by putting the chairs in order, by a thousand things that we do to get ready to act, but we never actually act. Oh, we're praying about it. Oh, we're thinking about it. Oh, we're really in, we're hoping somebody else might do it instead of us. But dear friends, these two things go together. She prays, but even as she prays, her heart is already decided she's going to act. In the three days when they're up, I'm going to the king. 
I'm going to put myself out there. I may die, but if I die, I die. Because she's decided to act. If prayer is disconnected from a heart resolved to act in obedience, that prayer is powerless. Do you hear me? If your heart is not resolved to be obedient before the Lord, then it's a powerless prayer time to say, Oh, Lord, help me prepare to be obedient if you're not going to do it. The intensity of prayer changes when you have already decided to be obedient, no matter the cost. Pray with a mind to act. Pray with a determination to obey, to obey God no matter what. If I perish, I perish. And then there's one other thing here. I just say rest. I think that's what we see when she says, if I perish, I perish. I don't think that is a fatalistic word there in, in these last five words of, of verse 16. These bold words put us to us a, a truth that, that when she acts in faithful obedience, she is already resting that whatever happens is under God's control. If you connect this with verse 14, if God has put her in, in, in that place for such a time as this, then she understands that if she goes before the Lord, that's under his sovereign providential will as well. If I perish, I perish. The what ifs can render you paralyzed and unable to act. For Esther, what if the king rejects her? What if? He deposes her as queen. He did that with his previous queen. What if she loses her life? What if she loses her position? There's a thousands what ifs. We've got them too. What if being obedient to the Lord causes you to lose your job? What if it causes you to lose some friendships? What if it costs you financially? What if it costs you politically? What if it costs you your life? We don't say this out loud very often, but sometimes we do. Several years ago, I was having a conversation with a Christian, and we were discussing a current event where someone did not do what they should have done. They did not act righteously. And I made the comment, I said, that is inexcusable. And this Christian man said to me, oh, I wouldn't have done it either. I was flabbergasted, first of all. And I said, what do you mean you wouldn't do it? And he said, well, I would lose my job if I did that. And I said, friend, there are some things worth losing your job over. Amen? Don't keep your job if it means you being faithless before the living God. Don't keep your job if it means being disobedient to the Lord. Listen, I believe God can provide all of our needs, even if that means losing your life, losing your job, losing your prestige, losing anything else. Amen? The what ifs will paralyze you. There is always a cost to obedience. Obedience to God does not guarantee an easy life, but obedience allows you to walk in the presence, in the presence, in the presence and the pleasure of God. Find rest not in protecting your personal comfort. Find rest in being in the center of the will of God. There are some moments in history that, because of maybe the tragedy or the human intensity of the moment, they just 
capture our attention forever and ever. John Harper, who was an English pastor, died on April the 15th, 1912. Now, if you recognize that date, you'll realize that he died on the night that the Titanic sunk as it made its way across the ocean from, from England to the United States. Harper was a pastor. He had enjoyed some real success in, uh, in England. His church had grown, and as a result of that, he had been invited to preach on some larger opportunities, and he had been over and preached at, uh, at Moody's Church in Chicago, and he had been invited back to preach again, a series of meetings. And he was making his way across the ocean to, to preach. At this point in his life, he was a widower. So he was traveling with his daughter and I, and I think a, a niece as well. The stories about him, even while the, the, the travel was going, was that he spent most of his days interacting with other passengers and uh, other folks making that voyage, sharing the gospel, preaching, even leading some prayer services on the, on the voyage. But what makes this story pretty amazing is that when the ship struck the iceberg and it became apparent that the boat was sinking, he made some strategic decisions. Put his daughter and, and the other family members with him on a lifeboat, but he didn't get on. Instead, he chose to stay on the deck of the boat and preached while that boat sank. There were some reports later after it was all said and done and, and the, 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 the survivors were beginning to tell their stories that even while he was, the, the boat had sunk and he had survived that initial sinking and was floating on some wreckage, as he floated up to and away from other survivors, he was preaching the gospel. Now, those sermons weren't very long. In fact, one account just simply said as he would float up to somebody, he'd say, dear, dear friend, have you trusted in Jesus? In him alone is salvation. And there were some amazing testimonies of people, survivors, who were plucked from those cold, icy waters, who gave their life to Jesus because of Harper's preaching in the water. He died that night. He was consumed by those icy waters. But he was consumed by those icy waters with the gospel message on his lip, preaching. Friends, don't you know that those survivors whose names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life understood that he was in those waters for such a time as that? Don't you understand that even as he gave his, put his loved ones on the, on the life raft but chose instead to stay on a sinking ship, that he understood that his moment was for such a time as that? There's a unique opportunity for a preacher when folks understand that their life is in danger to hear the gospel. And I think he understood that and used it for every opportunity that it was. Now, it may not likely be that you nor I have such a dramatic moment at the end of our life. But it is true. Listen to me carefully. It is true of every believer in this room. And this is true whether or not you are 8 years old or you're 88 years old. God has gifted you with the gospel of Jesus Christ for such a time as this. At your place of business, in your school, classroom, 
among your family, among your set of friends, the places you go, the places you play, the places you work, the place you shop. You've been given the knowledge of Jesus Christ who saves wicked sinners. Praise God. Who gives hope to a world that is dying in a, in a pandemic for such a time as this. And the question is, even if you're fearful, even if your boldness sometimes is mixed with all kinds of trepidation, will you be a faithful, obedient servant of the Lord in the moment that God has given you?